If you will, uh, please turn with me to John chapter 17. John chapter 17, there's been some change of plans. (laughs) I apologize. Um, Don't even have my tie on today. Let's see here. John chapter 17, we're going to be in verse 4. Let's go ahead and read the first four verses here. So um, this is Jesus' prayer, his concluding prayer to a sermon in the upper room. So in John chapter 13, you have Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. John chapters 14 through 16, you have Jesus preaching to his disciples, preparing them for what's ahead. And in John chapter 17, we read these words. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven. So he's praying to the Father. And he says, Father, the hour is come. Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, as thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. And so, in the first three verses of this text, we read of of Christ interceding for his people. He's praying for his disciples. We read of his dying on the cross when he says, The hour is come. We read of the gifts that he's received as mediator, that is power given to him by the Father, and a people given to him by the Father. We read of the the nature of eternal life in general in verse 3, which he says is to know God and to know his Son, Jesus Christ, which which we had spoken about probably about a year ago. I had preached on that verse. Um, But now we come to verse 4 in particular. Which reads, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. What Christ is doing in this verse is he's expanding upon or giving another reason for which God the Father ought to glorify the Son. He prays in verse 1, glorify thy Son that thy Son also may glorify thee. So, first of all, he says, he says to the Father, glorify me that I may glorify you. The glorification of the Son glorifies the Father. That's his first reason why he ought to be glorified. The second reason is he should be glorified because God has given him as mediator the power to save and a people to save. And now we come to the third reason. Jesus prays, glorify me because I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished all the work which thou hast given me to do. This prayer is a demonstration of faithfulness and of hope in the promises of God. God will not turn his back on what he's promised to do. 
However, at the same time, Jesus demonstrates for us here that we have the duty to pray that his promises would be worked out in our own lives. You see, we have an allusion here to what's called the covenant of redemption. It's the covenant made in eternity past between the persons of the Godhead. It's the covenant whereby the Father had in mind to send his Son to be the Redeemer of his people. And the Son willingly took upon himself human flesh to be born under the law, to die on a cross, bearing the sins of his people upon himself. And to what end, ultimately? It was for the glory of God. And upon the condition of Christ's work having been completed, the Father had promised to give unto his Son a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, things in heaven, things on earth, and all things under the earth. He promised to glorify the Son for his work. And here we see the Son appealing to that promise. Here he's he's praying to the Father. He's saying, in the covenant that we made in eternity past, you promised to glorify me when my work was done, and my work is now finished. Glorify me. He's not being presumptuous. He's not being greedy. He's demonstrating his faithfulness in the promise of God. Thomas Manton says that there's a difference between a plea and a challenge. Unbelievers challenge God to bless them on the basis of their own works, but believers humbly urge God to bless them by pointing to God's own promises. That's what Jesus is doing here. It's a demonstration of his confidence in the faithfulness of God to his word. And this confidence is what we as believers ought to demonstrate in our own prayers. God has has given us beautiful promises throughout his word. And they're for our good. And, And our faith should take these promises and turn them into prayer. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's he's standing in the gap between what what God has promised in the covenant with the Son in in, in eternity past. He's standing in the gap between the promise and the reality of his own experience. And he's praying that those two may be brought together. And as David prayed, David prays to the Father. He He says, do as thou hast said. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He's saying, you promised to give me glory when I finish my work. I have finished my work. Do as thou hast said. But now, in order to do justice to this text, we must consider the ways in which Christ had glorified the Father 
while he was on earth. And it's important to remember that Christ not only died for his people, he also lived for his people. He lived a perfect life in which he fulfilled the demands of the law perfectly on behalf of his people. He lived in such a way that the chief end of man was in his view at all times. And we all know that man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So the glory of God was the chief end of everything Christ did while he was on earth. Every, every breath he breathed was for the glory of God. Every word he spoke, every thought in his mind, every deed he did was for the glory of God. And now he's, he's coming to the end of his life. And he can say with confidence, I have glorified thee on the earth. The entirety of Christ's life on earth was a manifestation of the glory of God. Everything he did, he did in order to reveal the glory of the Father. That's why Paul writes that that the glory of God shines in the face of Jesus Christ in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So if you want to know the Father, look at the Son. That's why Jesus tells his disciples, He that hath seen me hast seen the Father. Christ is, as as Hebrews chapter 1 says, the express image of God. It's through Christ that the glory of God is revealed to us. And in this life, there's no greater view that we may have of God outside of the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in the gospel that we have the clearest glimpse of the glory of God in this life. The gospel is like a showcase of all the attributes of God. All his glory shines forth in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, in the gospel, we see the love of God. We could think of, of many ways in which God shows his love to us as his creatures. He shows his love for humanity in general by giving us life, allowing us to live, allowing us to breathe and to enjoy the things of this world. Every breath we take, whether you're a believer or an unbeliever, is a gift from God. We don't deserve any of it. But then God gives us so much more. The clothes we wear, the food we eat, the things we enjoy, entertainment. These are all gifts from God to humanity in general. We all benefit from the providence of God to some degree. Even the unbeliever can appreciate the beauty of creation. Even the unbeliever can delight 
in the providence of God. We all benefit in some way from the work of God in this world. But the love of God towards his people, those who have come to him by faith, that love runs much deeper. In the things of this world, God gives us little droplets of his love. But in the gospel, we get an ocean of his love. In the things of this world, we have temporal comforts. But in the gospel, we have eternal comfort. In the things of this world, God gives us his creation. We can enjoy the things that he's made. But in the gospel, God gives us himself. And Jesus Christ stands in the place of sinners, proclaiming to all the world the love of God for his people. Never has there been a greater picture of love in all the earth than in the gospel of Jesus Christ on the cross. In this was manifested the love of God towards us because God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. Just consider the condition of those for whom he came to save. A fallen, sinful, dreadful people. And yet, God set his love upon us. Not for anything in us, but out of his own goodness out of his free grace. John Murray once preached. He said, if we are to know love in its, full, in its furthest reaches and deepest depths, if our amazement is to scale the summit, we must turn our attention to the love of God towards unlovely and hateful objects and consider the love of God towards those who are in themselves wholly detestable. This is the picture of the gospel, that God commended his love towards us, in that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet his enemies, Christ died for us. What a picture of love that is. This is why the Puritans sometimes referred to Christ as, as love covered over with, with flesh. He's the fullest expression of the love of God known to man. But then also in the gospel, we see the mercy of God. In Exodus chapter 33, Moses said to God, show me thy glory. And God said, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee. 
And in showing Moses his glory, he proclaims his nature. He says, I am merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. These attributes declare his mercy and they make him glorious. And nowhere do they shine more brightly than in the face of Jesus Christ. See, God's mercy, to define it, is that attribute whereby God is inclined to come to the aid of a creature in his lowest state. And in the fall of man, we've been brought into the lowest estate, into an estate of sin and misery. See, all mankind sinned in Adam when Adam sinned in the garden. And now our our natures are corrupted. We've lost communion with God. We are under the wrath and curse of God apart from Christ. And apart from Christ, we'll ultimately suffer an eternity in hell. But those two lovely words in the Bible. But God. But God had a heart to save, a heart to redeem, and a heart to deliver a people for himself. And his heart for the salvation of his people is expressed in the gospel. In the giving up of his son on the cross. What a glorious mercy. In the person and work of Christ, we have a mercy greater than any other. Now, God does show general mercy to all of his creation. That's why you'll read in the Psalms that God's mercies are over all his works. But there's a special mercy in the gospel. A mercy put on full display by the person of Jesus Christ. Christ glorified the Father by his humiliation on earth and his being born and his being made under the law, undergoing all the miseries of this life, even the the wrath of God and the cursed death on the cross. And he did all of this that we might know God's mercy. You see, there's another attribute of God put on full display in the gospel. And that is the justice of God. God's justice demands that the punishment of our sins be paid. And the death of Christ shows forth this divine justice. See, God could not pardon our sins on unlawful terms. He could not simply overlook our sins. His justice needed to be satisfied. And Christ put the justice of God on full display 
in his suffering on earth, and most especially in his death on the cross. Anthony Burgess, a a Puritan, he writes, God's justice against sin is abundantly seen in that though Christ was the only beloved of the Father, yet he was not spared. He was made a curse and endured the wrath of God due unto us. And so if if you need an argument on why you should be kept from sin, look upon Christ crucified. Anthony Burgess continues, How can it be that sin could be so pleasing and delightful to us when it's so bitter and full of wrath for Christ? God's justice is seen most clearly and is most glorified in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God demonstrates his hatred towards sin when Jesus was hanging from the cross. God's justice is seen most clearly in the gospel, even more so than the reprobate in hell. You see, a person in hell can never satisfy the penalty of his sin. His debt will never be paid off. That's why hell is eternal. But on the cross, Christ satisfied the justice of God on behalf of his people in full. And this wonderful plan of salvation is a manifestation and a demonstration of the wonderful wisdom of God. The gospel puts the wisdom of God on full display. Because you see, on, on one hand, you have the mercy of God, which was willing to save and redeem sinners. But on the other hand, you have the justice of God, demanding that the price of their sins be paid in full. And the wisdom of God is found in the demonstration of his mercy and the satisfaction of his justice. The gospel makes the two possible. Willem Brockle, a Dutch Reformed, theologian. He says it beautifully. I think it's worth quoting him at length. He says, God declares that men by nature are children of wrath who are nothing but sin within and without and thus are hateful, abominable, intolerable, and condemnable. God declares himself to be the judge of all the earth a righteous judge who will by no means clear the guilty, whose judgment is according to truth, and who will reward everyone according to his works. Therefore, in order for man to be saved, the justice of God must be satisfied by the bearing of the punishment due upon the sinner, and by the perfect fulfilling 
of God's law. God, in his word, reveals the wondrous way whereby these two matters, the justice of God and the mercy of God, it reveals the wonder, wondrous way whereby these two matters have been executed and whereby the sinner can become a partaker of eternal life. God, out of purely free grace, solely out of love for hateful sinners, according to unsearchable wisdom, has given his own eternal son to be a surety a substitute for his elect. He who is very God and coessential with the Father and the Spirit has assumed the human nature, taken upon himself the sins of the elect, borne the punishment, fulfilled the law, and thereby reconciled the elect with God and merited their right to eternal life. The gospel makes the mercy of God and the justice of God compatible in the salvation of sinners. What love, what mercy, what justice, what wisdom it is that shines forth in the face of Jesus Christ in the gospel. We said that Christ's entire life on this earth was for the glory of God, for the glory of his love, for the glory of his mercy, for the glory of his justice, for the glory of his wisdom. Everything he did, he did with an eye to God's glory. And so he prays at the end of his life, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. But now, you might wonder, but he wasn't really finished yet. Up to this point, he's appointed his apostles. He's preached to hundreds of people. He's healed the sick. He's instituted the Lord's Supper. He's prepared his disciples for what comes next. But he still hasn't been arrested and delivered to the cross. He still hasn't died. He still hasn't risen again. But yet he tells us here that he's finished with his work. He uses the same Greek word, as he does when he's on the cross. And he says, it is finished. And so in what sense can he say, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do? Now there have been several answers given to this question throughout history. One of which, which I think is most plausible, is that Christ had so resolved in his heart to finish his work that he spoke as if it were already done. He knew what was coming. He knew what his father required of him. And his heart was fixed on bringing it to completion. This is the view of Thomas Manton. He says... 
Christ here had so determined to undergo death, and it was now at hand. In the consent and full determination of his will, it was done. Another possibility is given to us by Matthew Poole. He says, the time was so near that he speaks of it is already done. Matthew Henry kind of takes a similar view. He he says, the work was as good as finished. Whatever it may be, it's important to notice that in this prayer, Christ sometimes prays from the perspective of a future state. If you look at verse 11, um, remember this is Jesus' concluding prayer to his sermon in the upper room. And at this point in time, he's, he's standing in front of his disciples and he's praying for them. Yet in verse 11, he prays to the Father. He says, I am no more in the world. He prays as if he had already left earth. And in verse 4, he's, he's praying from that same perspective. He's praying as if he had already brought to completion all that he has determined to do in his heart. But as we, as we consider these words from Christ on the eve of his death, may we resolve in our hearts to live in such a way that on the day that we die, we can pray these words. God, I have, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. We've said already that everything Christ did, he did for the glory of God. That's what gave him the confidence to pray in this way. He lived He breathed. He gave everything for God's glory. Now, we can't live perfectly on this earth as Jesus did. Our sins, they plague even our our righteous acts. Yet we can die with this comfort if we have sincerely and faithfully and wholeheartedly sought to serve God through his Son, Jesus Christ. This is what allowed Paul to pray in in the same manner. Even though he was a persecutor of the church, he persecuted Christ, and he considered himself the chief of all sinners. Yet he was brought to faith, and he served Christ faithfully and sincerely. And towards the end of his life, he was able to pray, I have fought a good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord shall give me at that day. Paul, after his conversion, lived for the glory of God. And he could could reflect upon his life and be comforted with the thought of a crown of righteousness waiting for him in the life to come. 
Now just think. We have no idea how much time God will give us on this earth. But we do know that our time is coming. The clock is ticking. Time is running out. Your days are numbered. And every day, every hour, every minute is another step closer to the grave. So what's more important than asking yourself this question? Have I been living for the glory of God? Have I used the gifts that God has given me for his glory? Or have I, have I used them for my own pleasure, for my own desire? Or have I taken every opportunity to the best of my ability to serve the Lord in my place and in my calling? You see, God gives everyone with breath in their lungs the ability and the duty to serve him. It doesn't matter how young you are, how old you are, how educated you are. You have work to do for the glory of God. And you have no time to be unprofitable. We read in Matthew chapter 25 of the parable of the talents. And in this parable, we're taught that we are all given a certain number of talents or or gifts and privileges. And God expects us to employ them for his work. Just as God gave Christ work to do, he gives each one of us work to do here on this earth. We are to be stewards of his grace, and we're expected to do work for the kingdom of God. Whether you've been given one talent or a hundred talents, you have work to do for the glory of God. You don't want to be found an unprofitable servant. Christ calls the one who neglected his duty in using his talents wisely. He calls him wicked and slothful. And he says, cast ye the unprofitable servant into outer darkness, There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Unprofitableness in this life is a sin that's often overlooked. We might be tempted to think, as long as I'm not caught in outright sinful things, then I don't have to worry. And that leads many people to to sin in other ways. They waste their time. They waste their resources. They waste their lives, ultimately living for the glory and the pleasure of their own selves. Do you want to waste your life away? Then spend all your time mindlessly mindlessly scrolling through social media. Or mindlessly watching the television. Your flesh will tell you it's okay. You could be doing worse things. And the world will applaud you 
for binge-watching their favorite shows. And Satan will rejoice in your idle heart because an idle heart is fertile ground for the seeds of sin. And those seeds of sin will eventually sprout and produce thorns. And they'll choke the fruit of a faithful life. Thomas Manton gives us a great exhortation in this regard. He says, All pleasure should be used with fear and caution, lest it strengthen our sensual inclinations and enchant our minds and our hearts and divert us from the God of heaven. Now this vain pleasure and delight is inconsiderable in itself. For it's short, it's gone as soon as it comes, like a wind that passes away. If it leaves anything behind, it's a sting in the conscience for obeying appetite before reason or spending time so unprofitable, unprofitably for a thing of naught, a thing that's valueless. Don't waste your time on things of, of unprofitableness. Commit your life to holiness, to serving God, to living for his glory. And may you do all things as a dying man who's going to give an account of his life before God. Peter gives us an exhortation in chapter 4 of his first epistle. And there he commands us, As every man hath received the gift, even so minister the same one to another, as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. If any man minister, let him do it as of the ability which God giveth, that God in all things may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom be praise and dominion forever and ever. Living for the glory of God begins in the heart by our deep affection for him, by our love for him, by our delighting in him above everything else. But it doesn't stop there. The heart of man pours forth out of his mouth and his hands. Our love for God stimulates our love for our neighbors. We begin to desire to do good to those around us. We use our resources for those around us. We seek out opportunities to serve one another, and we devote ourselves to the church. Our time, our money, our attention starts to become driven away from vanity and foolishness. And it seeks instead to see that God be praised, that he be glorified. 
As every man hath received the gift, even so serve one another for the good of each other, but most importantly, for the glory of God. Christ has set an example for us in his life. He lived for the glory of God. Every thought, word, and deed of his was for the glory of God. Whether he was praying or teaching or preaching, singing or serving, it was all for God's glory. In his eating and drinking, in his everyday conversation, he did it all for the glory of God. Even in his worldly employment, we're told that Jesus was a carpenter. But even in this, he was ultimately concerned with God's glory. Where has God placed you? No matter where you are, no matter what your position is in this world, your obedience to God, your work for the kingdom is required of you. Seek the Lord in all that you do. Everything we do at our jobs, in our homes, with our friends, with our family, we ought to do all things for God's glory. So acknowledge him in everything. Even in the mundane things in life, like eating and drinking, make the glory of God your chief end. What does that look like? Well, it means we ought to consider God's purpose for these things in our lives. We ought to do nothing before we consider God's purpose in what we're doing. What's the purpose of food and drink? It's not simply for our nourishment. It's not simply for our pleasure. It's for God's glory. The food that we eat and the drinks that we drink, they give us energy that we need to serve him. It's not merely for ourselves. And so we ought to eat and drink enough to satisfy, and so we ought to eat and drink enough to satisfy ourselves so that we may continue to worship God and to serve others. It allows us to keep going, to keep working, to keep serving. But we all too often make a God out of our own bellies. And we desire more and more and more for the comfort that food gives to us. But remember, to eat and drink to the glory of God not to the satisfaction of, of your own lusts and your own pleasure. That's just an example. But keep an eye on Christ at all times. Consider him as, as watching your every action, listening to your every word, hearing your every thought. And may your life be dedicated to the glory of God by the holy conduct of your life by the grace of God, may we be able to finish our lives well that we could pray with Christ on our last day. Heavenly Father, I have glorified thee on the earth.
I have finished the work which thou gavest me.